Isaiah 38 and 39 tonight, if you want to turn your Bibles there. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you and praise you for the day and the opportunity to gather this evening to worship and, and adore you. We thank you for the chance to uh, open your word, Lord. It is the book of life. It is uh, what we, uh, through which we connect to you, um, through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. It's how we learn of your attributes and your goodness. It's how we uh, become part of the story, God, and we recognize all that you have done for us. Lord, we're gracious. We're, I'm sorry, we're grateful because you're gracious. I do pray that you settle my mind, that you settle my heart, Lord, just as, as things have been racing for the last couple hours. Lord, I just uh, want to lead well tonight, so help me to do that as we go through your word. I pray that all of us would have ears to hear. Father, that we would recognize that the seasons, the events in our lives are orchestrated and given by you to mold and shape our character. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been going through uh, the book of Isaiah for uh, several months now, and we are just about on the cusp of, of turning the corner. We are just about to the point where we head into the, the second major portion of the book. The book is really kind of divided into two sections, um, chapters 1 through 39, and then chapters 40 to 66. Uh, they kind of have their own theme. They're kind of directed in their own ways. They kind of have their own emphasis. And, and so we're just about to that point where we kind of turn, and chapters 40 to 66 really take on this air of grace, this beautiful picture of God's grace. And it's, uh, you could almost call the book of Isaiah like a mini Bible. If you know that your, your, your books of the Bible, you know that there are 39 books in the Old Testament. There are 27 books in the New Testament. Uh, the story of the Old Testament um, hinges on, on the law and, and God's uh, strong side. And then the, the books of the New Testament uh, hinge on his grace after Christ has come and and so Isaiah kind of breaks it out just the way that the whole Bible breaks it out. It's kind of a cool picture. Uh, 66 chapters in Isaiah, 66 books in the Bible, and broken almost identically. So we're, we're finishing up the end of the, the first part. And I'm sorry, chapters 36 to 39 are a historical interlude in between the two sections. Uh, we've really looked at for the for the first you know, 35 chapters, this prophecy that was given uh, as Isaiah was taken up before the throne of God, that God is going to bring his judgment against the nation of Israel, bring his judgment against the nation of Judah. Remember, they're divided at this point. Civil war had broken out. Using the nation of Assyria, uh, and he, that's the hammer that God chooses to use. He completely wipes out the nation of Israel at the time, he takes 46 of the major cities in, in Judah and then um, brings Assyria up to the neck of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's getting ready to fall, and the Lord intervenes at that last minute. And we read this last week in the historical account, chapters 35 and 36. The angel of the Lord stops the Assyrian army there on the doorstep, if you would, of Jerusalem, slaughters 185,000 Assyrian men of war in one night. Massive victory. Not for the people of Jerusalem, not for the, the army of Judah, but for God himself as the angel of the Lord wipes out, just imagine that, massacre in one night. So now as we head into chapter 38, 
we're actually going to step back in time <laughs> a little bit to before when the angel of the Lord came. Chapters 35 and 36, we read about the angel of the Lord coming and the, and the victory against Assyria. We're going to step backwards as we go forward, and, and God's Word does that sometimes. God doesn't, isn't particularly concerned with chronology all the time, and, and so it, you, know, you and I expect things to flow along a timeline, and very often uh, God's Word just simply doesn't. And so chapter 38 and 39, the events of those chapters actually happen before chapters 35 and 36. We're going to look at um, the king, Hezekiah. Have you guys heard the expression, bad news comes in threes? Yeah. I don't know if I believe that or not. Um, I, I certainly have seen examples of that and, and know of people that have gone through those things. And I know that people, I know of people that have had two bad things happen and they're waiting for the shoe to drop. You know, it's like, oh, what else is going to happen to me? Um, so I don't know how much weight you can put in that, but um, as we look at the life of Hezekiah, you can kind of see maybe perhaps three things happening to him that he's had struggles with. He's, he's, a, he's the king of the nation of Judah, and at the age of 39, he has no children. And you're like, well, that's, that's pretty common in our day and age, and I suppose that it is to a certain degree, but this was the king's lineage. This was the lineage of David. This was... God's, God had promised to Hezekiah and to his family that there would always be a king on the throne, that there would always be somebody ruling and reigning. And Hezekiah is looking at his life at the age of 39 and going, well, what about me? And he doesn't... So there's that perhaps bad news and at least a, a question in his life to say, God, what's going on with this? The second bad news is Assyria. Assyria is marching on Jerusalem. Israel's fallen. Most of Judah has fallen. This massive army that's divided between Lachish and, and Jerusalem is, 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 is surrounding and placing a siege on the, nation, on the city of Jerusalem. Um, I don't know about you, but we talked about the fear of that and, and, and Rab Shaka last week threatening that, you know, you guys are going to be drinking your own pee to survive this. And, and so there, there was the threat of that looming. That looming. That's bad news as well. Well, for Hezekiah, as we start to read, the shoe's about to drop. More bad news. He gets his third piece of bad news. It says in Isaiah chapter 38, verse 1, In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. So this wasn't just a common cold. This wasn't just a little bit of a fever. This was a, an ailment of some sort. We don't know the degree or the uh, uh, or what exactly it was, but we know that it was severe enough that he was on, his, on death's door. They had pretty much called hospice, is where we're talking. He, he, it, things were not looking good for the king. Keep reading, and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, Amos, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Wow. Thanks, Isaiah. Such a word of encouragement. There's a lot of pressure going on in Hezekiah's life right now. 39, no kids, uh, getting ready to be taken captive by Assyria. And this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Death is coming. And 
while that in and of itself is worrisome enough, certainly so, to know that your life is going to end, to know that you're near that door, would certainly cause fear and terror in my heart, probably all of our hearts. But link that with the idea, okay, I'm going to die without an heir. Who's going to take the throne? What's going to happen? What happened to the promises of God? I'm going to die, and I'm not even going to be able to take care of my people as Assyria comes to, to take them captive. I, 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 can't even, I can't even help with that. And, and you just imagine all of this pressure mounting on Hezekiah in this moment. As we said, we're not really sure what's wrong. There's, we're going to find out that there's a, some sort of boil or tumor or mass of some sort that is, uh, you know, causing an issue that he has neared death. We don't know the details of it. Of course, medicine in those days certainly wasn't what it is today. And so to, to say for sure what it was, we don't know. How about this? Tact is a gift that some people don't have, <laughs> right? Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, not Isaiah the doctor, because his bedside manner is terrible. Hey, Hezekiah, how's it going? Wait a minute, I know how it's going. It's going bad. Why? Because you're going to die. Get your house in order, drops the mic, and walks out, you know? Hey, come on, Isaiah. They, they've been friends for a long time. And, and, and even if Hezekiah had been thinking it, to hear it from his buddy, you could have, you know, well, you know, the doctors try to put a positive spin. There's a there's a you know 80% chance, there's a 40% chance, there's a 50% chance of survival. There's things, you know, it, it, there's a possibility that, but there's a possibility it may be fatal as well. And, and, and if you've been around, if you've had family members, if you've had loved ones that have walked through that, you know those, the, the devastating blow that that is. Isaiah does, almost doesn't seem to care in this moment. You're going to die. Get your house in order. Can you imagine hearing that? Talk about a punch in the face. So these three things are looming on the king's mind, perhaps wondering about the promises of God. God, where are you at in all of this? Verse 2, Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord. And there's a lot of people that would say, oh, Hezekiah wimped out in this moment. He just... He, just, he, 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 he stuck his face in the corner. He wanted to sulk for a while. Well, you imagine getting that news. What, what's your reaction going to be when the doctor says, it's terminal? What, wouldn't you sulk for a minute? Wouldn't you grieve for a time? The stages of death, the, the stages of grief that, that you have to walk through and the, thing, the difficulties of understanding and fathoming all that the, that news brings, certainly you would have a reaction to it. Those are, those are saying, oh, he's just sulking. He needs to take it like a man. That's, that's insensitive. And chances are that's not what he was doing anyway. He probably wasn't sulking in this moment. Probably in his chamber, in his room, was filled with all kinds of attendants, all kinds of people trying to take care of him, get him what he needs. And the only privacy that he has is to turn away from all of that. Be like me turning around and just 
You know, I, at least I, I don't have to look at anybody for a minute. I just need to gather my thoughts. I need to think for a minute. I need to shut everything else off. And I know that I've been in that moment. I know that you have as well. Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall. And what did he do? Prayed to the Lord. Right on, Hezekiah. And, and this is like the third time in the last three chapters that we've seen Hezekiah do the right thing, push the right button at the right time. Doesn't try everything else and then the God button is the last button he pushes. No, he goes to God first. Thank you for the example, Hezekiah. May we learn it in our lives as well. When trials and difficulties come, when, when hardship falls upon us, that we don't try to fix it ourselves first and then turn to God. No, Hezekiah immediately turns to the wall Turns to the Lord. May we be the first to, may that be the first button that we push. And this is his prayer in verse 3. He said, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I've walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And at this point, Hezekiah can't even keep the words together. It says, Hezekiah wept bitterly. Imagine the, that news. Imagine that devastation and, and just the, the initial wash of, of grief and sorrow and pain in that as, as he tries to absorb all of that. But he prays and he says, remember me, O Lord. Does the Lord remember him? Of course he does. The Lord doesn't forget. But he says, remember me. In other words, show favor upon me in this moment, Lord. Remember how I, and, and I have done my best to walk in your truth. I've tried to be devoted and loyal to you. Hezekiah was, in fact, a very good king. In fact, in, in the list of kings between the nation of Israel to the north and the nation of Judah to the south, throughout the history given to us in the Word of God, there were only about eight kings that were denoted as good, Hezekiah was one of them. Was Hezekiah perfect? Nope. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he was good, one of, one of the eight kings. So if he was a good king, if he was honoring God and following after him, why at the age of 39 was he going to die? What, what was going on? And of course, we don't know the answer to that. The Lord is sovereign in these things, and it's a struggle to try to figure out his ways at times. But Hezekiah, just overwhelmed, he weeps. You know what? This is his first time at death. <laughs> he hadn't practiced this before. I think if we could practice death, if we could you know, step over the threshold once or twice before it actually happens, we probably wouldn't be as afraid. But the truth of the matter is we get one shot at death. We, we get one shot to cross that threshold. And, and none of us have experienced it before. And so he was overwhelmed. Your first time at death, it's sobering. Imagine knowing when you were going to die. What if somebody came to you and said, you've got one year, eight months, four days, and four hours to live? 
How would that impact your life? How would that change what you do, who you are, how, what your relationships you have, the things that you have? It would impact everything, knowing the day of your death. I, I've been back and forth as I've considered this throughout the day. The, the information that Hezekiah got in this moment, was, a was it a blessing or was it a curse? Was it, was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? Well, as of right now, it, I'm not even sure. Well, what's going to be interesting is how the story continues. And if you've read through this, you know what's going to happen. But it's just, or it's just I, I try to especially as I read of, of the men of the Old Testament, I, I want to put my sh myself in their shoes and, and try to feel what they feel. Consider the, the emotion of the moment instead of just reading the words on the page. This, this had to be a massive blow. And not just to him, but as he is the king, to all of the people in earshot. I mean, who was in the room as Isaiah said it? The king's going to Syria's outside. There's nobody to take the throne. This, this would have thrown a panic throughout the kingdom with this news. Isaiah, or sorry, Hezekiah prays, Remember me now, O Lord. And watch what happens, verse 4. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, Go and tell Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David your father. Um, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Surely I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you and the city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. So as, as you can see there, by the promise that God has made, the city has not yet fallen to Assyria uh, and, and in fact, by the promise of God, it won't, it won't fall. So God says, request heard, permission granted in this moment. It's, it's actually very interesting. If you read this account, the account of this story, it's given also in 2 Kings chapter 20 and in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. Uh, the same story occurs. If you read the account in 2 Kings chapter 20, we get a little bit more information. It says in verse 4 of 2 Kings 20, and it happened before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people. Thus says the Lord God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you in the city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Before Isaiah even gets out of the building, God is answering the prayer. So Hezekiah didn't have to sit in this moment for very long at all, thankfully. He, he receives the answer to his request almost immediately. It was the example that I gave you last week as we were praying about how to um, uh, have enough money to afford a hotel as we go down to Miami um, in, in April. And we were going to camp, and I was talking with Michelle, and I was like, you know, Lord, I, I, I told Michelle, she's not my Lord. Um, <laughs> you know, Michelle, I was like, maybe the Lord would provide for us a hotel uh, so that we don't have to try to figure out how to bring all the camping gear and six people and all this stuff into our minivan for 18 hours in the car. 
Maybe God, if we, if we pray, God would provide for us a way that we could actually afford a hotel for the whole week. And then four minutes later, I hadn't even officially prayed yet. It was a conversation between Michelle and I that we should pray about this. Four minutes later, I get a text from my old boss. Hey, we want you to come back and uh, help us every week, you know, unload the truck and we'll give you some money with that. And so one day a week, you know, and I did the calculation on what they would pay me in between now and April and it's enough for us to get a hotel room, you know, and it's like, that's a pretty quick answer, Lord. Technically, I didn't even ask, you know. That's what's, that's what's going on in Hezekiah's life here, except on a way bigger scale. I mean, his life hangs in the balance. This was if we, you know, camp or if we buy a Holiday Inn, you know. That, that's not, like, life-threatening. Well, maybe, no, no, it's not, actually. But Why should we pray? This story tells us why we should pray. Because prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. How does this fit into the sovereignty of God who has ordained things since before the beginning of time? How does, how does this fit into the elect and the predestined and the all, all those kinds of things? I don't know. I don't know. I know that God is sovereign, and I know that prayer changes things. And I can't reconcile those two things in my mind, but my mind is a peanut. You know, my mind is, is infantile and small, and so it's okay that I can't reconcile it because my God is way bigger than that. I know that God is sovereign, but I know that prayer changes things. God in His love for His people inclines his ear to us. He allows his will to be shaped and changed by people and by prayer. And here is a prime and perfect example. Why should you and I pray? I mean, if God is in complete control and God is sovereign over all things, then the logical end of that statement is to say, then why bother praying? He's a good God and he's in control. I don't even need to pray. It's, it's kind of the end, that's the end thought of the, the Reformed theology, the Calvinistic theology that would say, you know, those that are elect are elect, and those that are predestined are predestined, and everybody else is, is not. And, and so the result of that thinking is, well, then why evangelize? Because if God is sovereign, then you're going to get saved, you know, whether you want to or not. So why even bother evangelizing at this point? Well, you take that thought to the end result, and then the the next thing is say, well, why even talk to God? Because we're not going to change Him anyway. But God's Word says otherwise. And for some reason, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who spun all things and created all things, says, I'll change my mind. I'll change my will if you'll pray to me. If you'll ask. Another example, Moses praying for his people. God goes to Moses and says, you know what, this is a wicked people. I don't know why I ever brought them out of Egypt. I'm just going to wipe them off the face of the earth. I'll start again with you, Moses, and we'll build the people after me. And what does Moses do? Far be it from you, my Lord, that, that, then, that Egypt would defame your name because of the people of God. And God relents in that moment. God changes his mind, changes his will to say, all right, Moses, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to what you say. How about Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah? 
right? Hey, God, sorry to bother you. If there be 50 righteous people left in Sodom and Gomorrah, I know you want to wipe it out, and you know what? I don't blame you that there are wicked people. But if there be 50 people left in Sodom and Gomorrah, would you destroy the city? Uh, no, I wouldn't destroy the city. Well, well, Lord, I, I'm small, and, and I just forgive me for interrupting, but if there, if there be 45 people, would you destroy the city for 45 people? No, I wouldn't do that either. What about 30? What about 25? What about 10? No. And then we know the story. God, uh, in his grace, pulls Lot out, his family out. His wife looks back to the city and turns to the biggest piece of salt. God inclines his ear to you and I. Why pray? Because prayer changes. He inclines his ear, allows his will to be shaped by his people. Prime example of he in Hezekiah here. So verse 7 says, And this is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing which he has spoken. God has promised that he's going to heal Hezekiah, that he's going to save the city, that he's going to defend the city. It's not going to fall to Assyria. This is the sign. It says in verse 8, Behold, I will bring the shadow on the sundial, which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz 10 degrees backward. So the sun returned 10 degrees on the dial by which it had gone down. Evidently part of Hezekiah's throne or one of the rooms in the, in the palace, something, um, the, the word sundial can be also translated here, steps. And it was a way that they measured time in accordance with the sun and the shadows. And so, not exactly sure of the details of it, but what God has said is that I will, I will, the shadow had come this far, I'll take it back 10 degrees. Not, not something that could naturally happen. Again, we get more information in 2 Kings chapter 20. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, this is verse 8 of 2 Kings 20, what is the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I should go up to the house of the Lord the third day? Then Isaiah said, this is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing which he has spoken. And then he gives, Isaiah, he gives Hezekiah the choice. Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees or go backward 10 degrees? And Hezekiah answered, it's an easy thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees. No, but let the shadow go backward 10 degrees. So Isaiah the prophet cried out to the Lord and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. How did this happen? How on earth did this, what, what occurred in this moment? I'm sorry, I don't seem to have answers for you tonight, but I don't know. <laughs> I know that it did. Why? Because God's word is true, and I trust God's word. And I'm sorry if that makes me a simple man, but that's the way it is. I don't, I'm not a physicist, I'm not a cosmologist, or whatever, you know, astrologist astronomy. I, I'm not into, I, I get into all that. I like it. I don't understand it. Um, I've been watching this, this class on the cosmos and they, you know, they're talking way up here and he's dumbed it down, you know, from the professor level. He's still talking way up here and I'm just like, cool, God did it, you know. How did he do it? I don't know. But if, if you can get past the first sentence of the Bible, the rest is easy. 
In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. You believe that? You get past that? Then moving the sun 10 degrees is no big deal. A couple possibilities. It could have been a global thing. Seems like that would be really, really difficult to you know, suddenly stop the earth, rotate it the other direction. We're traveling at about 1,000 miles an hour. If you were, imagine slamming on the brakes at 60 miles an hour, you know the force uh, impact and, and all of that at 60 miles an hour, what that does to your body. To stop something moving 1,000 miles an hour, everybody would kind of just fly off and then you know, to rotate it back the other way. Still a possibility. I don't know the details of it. I don't know how that would be possible. Still possible. God could have bent the light. How hard is that for him? I mean, he created the light. He could have just changed the refraction, right? I mean, we see, we, we see evidences of that in a black hole, that the light bends, that light is matter, and that it's affected by different gravitational poles. So perhaps that's what happened. That all I know is God said it happened. You know, Hezekiah saw it as a sign and trusted that that's what the Lord had for him. If we get nothing else out of it, if we don't know exactly how it happened, I mean, it's a picture of God turning back the clock for Hezekiah, right? That's exactly what's happening. That's the, the, the thing that he's asked for. Make the, make the clock go back. Give me more time, God. And in fact, God gives him another 15 years. Let's ask the question, what if Hezekiah had died? What, what's the big deal? I mean, certainly God can raise up rock, you know, raise up from rocks, descendants of Abraham or what have you. God can, God has, has the capability uh, of of providing a way for the Messiah to come. What if Hezekiah had died? Well, then Manasseh wouldn't have been born three years later. I don't know how you how well you know your king's lineage. Manasseh was the worst king they ever had. 55 years of terror. Maybe it would have been better if Hezekiah had died, because then Manasseh wouldn't have been born. But what's interesting about Manasseh, as he's carried off to Babylon, captive, the Lord gets a hold of his heart and breaks him. And he becomes repentant. And he sets his life right. And in the last days of Manasseh's life, though the first 55 of his reign were wicked, in the last years of his life, he serves the Lord. He cries out in true repentance, and God turns his life around. And then Manasseh raises Josiah, the following king. And Josiah was the best king. Since King David. Had Hezekiah died and his life not been extended, none of that would have happened. And then, of course, the question what would have happened to the lineage of David? How would Messiah have come? So then, verse 9, Hezekiah writes a song. He's the king. I suppose he can write a song if he wants to. Verse 9 This is the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah when he had been sick and he recovered from his sickness. This is the song. I said, in the prime of my life, I shall go to the gates of Sheol. That is the grave. Sheol is the grave. 
in the prime of my life, 39 years, I shall go to the gates of Sheol. I am deprived of the remainder of my years. So that tells you it's a blues song, <laughs> right? Dun, 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 dun. In the prime of my life, dun, 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 dun. shall go to the gates of Sheol. Dun, dun. Sorry. I got your wheels turning, didn't I? <laughs> Verse 11, (laughs) I said, I shall not see Yah, that is God. I shall not see Yah, the Lord in the land of the living. And we need to understand as we read the Old Testament that their perspective on death was different than my perspective, than your perspective on death today. They were still looking forward to the first coming of the Messiah. They were still waiting for that event. We are looking forward to the second coming of the Messiah, the return of Messiah. We've experienced, we have lived, we live beyond the resurrection. We understand the resurrection of Jesus. They didn't have that information. They viewed death in a different way. Their perspective on death was, was different as Christ had not yet come. When they died, they, it seems as though they went to a waiting place it, it called Sheol here, uh, called other places Abraham's bosom. There was the, the waiting of the Messiah and uh, waiting for their souls to be purchased by his blood. They didn't understand that heaven is truly the land of the living. I mean, that's what Hezekiah calls the earth in this song. I'm not going to see God yet again. What he didn't understand and what you and I can understand in this day is that this is not the land of the living. This is the land of the dead. And sin has corrupted and wasted this planet. And sin has corrupted and wasted our lives. And yet through His redemption, and yet through His power, and through His blood, life came to us. And and eternal life is extended to us. And when we cross over that threshold from this life to the next, death is not the end of the road, as Levi Lusco says. Death is not the end of the road, but just a bend in the road. And, and, and when we cross that threshold, we enter into the land of the living, the land of all eternity. Hezekiah didn't understand that. He says, um, I said, I shall not see Yah, the Lord, in the land of the living. I'll, I shall observe man no more among the inhabitants of the world. With death looming, it kind of brings a, a sobering view of life. And what's truly important, suddenly it's not about the Seth Currys and the Beats. It's not about the stuff we have. It's not about the the things we have. If if you have have a a death certificate waiting you, it's not so much about the car you drive or the job you have anymore. It kind of brings life into a sobering perspective, and it's about the people you know. And Hezekiah's concern in this moment is to say, I'm not going to get to hang out with my friends anymore. I'm not going to get to be with my family anymore. I shall observe man no more in the inhabitants of the world. And that breaks his heart. That's why the beauty of eternity is relationship with all of our brothers and sisters, forever praising God. Death looming brings a sobering view of life. He says, my lifespan is gone, taken from me like a shepherd's tent. I have cut off my life like a weaver. He cuts me off from the loom. From day until night, you make an end of me. You know what? 
God's shoulders are really big. And when you have questions, like Hezekiah has questions about, God, what are you doing with my life? God can handle those questions. There's room for pain at the feet of Jesus. There's room for doubt and fear and questions at the feet of Jesus. You can express your heart to Him. He says, I've considered until morning like a lion. So He breaks all of my bones. From day until night, you make an end of me. He feels the pressure. He feels the depression is going to overwhelm him. It's, it's swallowing him. It's going to consume him like a lion would consume dinner. He's concerned. He's broken. Like a crane or a swallow, so I chattered. I mourned like a dove. My eyes fail from looking upward. Oh Lord, I'm oppressed. Undertake for me. There weren't any pain pills in those days. He couldn't go to the medicine cabinet and he had been sick for some time. He was suffering, chattering like a crane, it says. Verse 15, what shall I say? He has both spoken to me and he himself has done it. I shall walk carefully all my years in the bitterness of my soul. He asks the question, what shall I say? And that's a perspective of submission. He recognizes that God, in fact, is sovereign. He understands that he is in control, and yet Hezekiah still asks for his life. And God grants it. James chapter 4, verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. God's just waiting on us to say, just ask. He says there in verse 15, I shall walk carefully all my years in the bitterness of my soul. The idea there is I shall walk circumspectly. I shall, if you continue my life, Lord, and I'm not sure he even knew at this point what Isaiah was going to say or come back and say, but it, God, if you were to save me, if you were to continue, if I, my life were to continue, I will walk with that perspective you've given me, that sobriety you've given me, knowing that I'm on death's door. I'll walk circumspectly. I'll consider my life. I won't just live year to year. I'll live day by day. That's what death does. It gives us a perspective of day by day and year, not year by year. Oh Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit. So you will restore me and make me live. Here in the midst of this blues song is this ray of light, a ray of hope. And, and in a good blues song, I believe that there is that, and there should be anyway. And, and, and there is always a ray of hope, especially because He's a good Father. And He upholds us, and He holds us in His hand. Isaiah, or Hezekiah, in all these things is the life of my spirit, so you will restore me and make me live. God, you hold me in the palm of your hand. If we recognize how fragile our life is and how much he holds us together. Indeed, he says in verse 17, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. Wow, what a statement. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. But you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Great bitterness can cause 
proper perspective which can grant us peace. (laughs) Does that make sense? Are you tracking with that? Great bitterness can cause proper perspective which can grant us peace. When, uh, when the, sobri- this, the sobering news comes, it can put things into a right perspective. It can set our mind right and our heart right before Him. And that can grant us peace. There's a story of a Russian prisoner of war who was um, uh, uh, a prisoner actually because of his faith, rather, uh, a prisoner for the gospel. Um, and they were threatening, there were several of them that had been taken captive. I can't remember the guy's name, but um, they, they had them isolated and, and they were telling the prisoners that they were killing them one by one. And, uh, and so um, as they grabbed this guy, um, what he come to, came to find out was, you know, they would, they would say, you need to renounce Christ or we're going to shoot you in the head after we count to ten. And what he would come to find out is that they weren't actually doing that. They were just terrorizing them. But he said that as the guy got to seven, the gospel got crystal clear. Ten is coming. When you get to seven, it's all of a sudden the gospel kind of comes into perspective. That's, That's what Hezekiah is saying here. Peace came through bitterness. The gospel became... And this is the gospel that he says, you have cast all my sins behind your back. You have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. Is that not the story of the gospel? Thought I'd get an amen there, but okay. Thank you. For Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit hope for your truth. The living the living man, he shall praise you as I do this day. The Father shall make known your truth to the children. Wow, what a statement. The Father shall make known your truth to the children. Take inventory, Dad. It's on your shoulders. It's on my shoulders as a father to make his truth known to our children. It's not mom's job. It's on our shoulders, Dad. The Father shall make known your truth to the children. We hear that in the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall teach them is what, is what Moses tells the men of, of Israel as they are forming and becoming a country. Israel was a patriarchal society. God is speaking to the men in this moment. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Why do you think Satan attacks the family through the father most often? The statistics are staggering. The number of people that are in jail... Um, who have not had a father figure in your life? It's in their life. It's something like eighty-five to ninety percent of the people in jail are are the commonality between them is there was no father figure to raise them. It's on the shoulders of the fathers to bring forth the truth. So, verse twenty, 
The Lord was ready to save me, therefore we will sing my songs with stringed instruments. Guitars rock. All the days of our life in the house of our Lord. Another indication it's a blues song. Play it on the stringed instrument. Just saying. Now Isaiah had said, Let them take a lump of figs and apply it as a poultice on the boil, and he shall recover. So it isn't that God just miraculously heals him, although he got, that's in fact what God does, but he does it through this homeopathic, very interesting approach where Isaiah tells the people, go mash up some figs and put it on the boil. Why does that work? I don't know. But that's what God prescribed. That's, what God, that's the way God chose to heal him. And what we need to understand is that, and hear this, all healing is done by God. All healing is done by God. And sometimes He uses medicine to do it. We need to recognize, the man of prudence would recognize that all he has has been given to him by God. We were, I was talking about that with a guy this morning. Everything that we have, even the breath that we have in our lungs, is a gift from God. The talent that we have, the ability that have, if you have the ability to practice medicine, you didn't do that on your own. God put that in you. And so all healing is by God, including medicinal healing. I got a call last night from a longtime friend. He was brokenhearted because uh, his dad's been diagnosed with throat cancer. And uh, as we were talking, I'm trying to comfort him. And, um, and actually, the prognosis looks fairly good. But when you hear that word, it's just, it sends you reeling in so many different ways. And um, as uh, his father and his mom considered the prognosis and the steps that they were going to take, the doctors had made a plan. They, were gonna, they felt as though the, kid, uh, the cancer came... Um, uh, developed in one of his um, tonsils, and so they said, let's remove the tonsil, we'll biopsy it, and then that will help us to give a bit greater understanding of, of the cancer and how to um, go forward with uh, chemo and radiation. And as they got that information, they actually had a piece about the plan. God had given them a, 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 a piece to say, this is the way I, I want to go through... Yes, have his tonsil removed. Yes, go through this, this surgery and, and move forward in this way. And so they then placed this information out on Facebook so that they could get words of encouragement for the dad and for prayer. And somebody hijacked the comments and started talking about, don't let him cut on you. Don't let, you know, don't let the surgeons do it. If they cut, that's how cancer spreads. If you know, chemotherapy is a billion-dollar industry, and, and they're just trying to make money off of you. Don't let them do this. And, the, and, and it created all kinds of fear and all kinds of doubt in, the, in his dad's mind, his mom's mind, when they had, had been given peace about it by God. They, they, people hijacked it. And, and my encouragement to Daniel, um, my buddy, my encouragement to him was to say, go back to what, where the peace was. You know what? Just set all of that stuff aside and, and people have their harebrained ideas. And just set that aside and say, all right, God, this is where you gave me peace. This is the direction that I'm going to go. God's not a God of confusion. God's not a, a God of fear. Perfect love casts out fear. So head in the direction that you have peace. 
All healing is by God, including medicinal, which is what is prescribed here. And Hezekiah had said, What is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? And that's the end of the song. So chapter 39, just eight verses. At that time, uh, Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, imagine that on a football jersey. What's your name? Hi, I'm Merodach Baladin. Honey, we're thinking about names. You got any names picked out? Yeah, I really like Merodach Baladin. What do you think? Whatever. And at the time, Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, the king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Now, Babylon at this time is not yet a world power. Assyria is in power. We're about 100 years away from Babylon being strong. But so perhaps in the desire to try to form an alliance with Hezekiah, Merodach Baladin sends a gift after he's hearing that he had been sick. So that tells us he had been sick for a time because the word got out. Uh, Babylon about 200 miles away. Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver and the gold, the spices and the precious ointment, and all of his army, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Hezekiah was a great king who made some dumb mistakes. And this was one of them. All the kings did some dumb things. All of them except one king. But that's a whole other story. Here, Hezekiah, driven by pride, forgetting who healed him, forgetting who promised him 15 more years of life, He's going to steal God's glory in this moment. He has the opportunity to point the people of Babylon toward the one true God, and he robs God of that glory and says, no, look at my kingdom, look at all that I have, check out the storehouses, check out everything I've done. He steals God's glory. Chuck Smith, some of the best advice to pastors, and he gave great advice in many ways, but I don't know why this is easy to remember. He told pastors, don't touch the gold. Don't touch the girls, and don't touch the glory. Don't touch the gold, don't touch the girls, don't touch the glory. And all the glory is God's. If He does something in and through you, we're just an instrument in His hands. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, "Uh, What did these men say, and where did they come from to you? So Hezekiah said, Oh, they came to me from a far country, from Babylon. He's all excited about it. Hezekiah should have gone and sought out Isaiah when they showed up. Hey, what does the Lord say? Hey, could you pray for me about this? Babylon is in our in our, our house. He should have sought Isaiah out. Rather, Isaiah had to seek him out. That's telling us Hezekiah was full of pride in this moment. Verse 4, and he said, Well, Isaiah, now what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they've seen it all, all in my house. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Interesting that he uses that term there, the God of the angel armies. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated, Hezekiah, it wasn't your stuff. All that your fathers have accumulated 
until this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget. And they shall be eunuchs in the place of the king of Babylon. The people of Judah, protected from the Assyrians, would eventually fall to the Babylonians. And it began right here with the pride of the king. The sin of the king, which is pride. Remember, at this point, Hezekiah had no sons, so this curse that Isaiah is speaking is also a prophecy because it says uh, in there in verse 7, they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you. He didn't have any sons at this point, so it's also prophetic in nature. And some would even indicate that perhaps uh, the, from this verse, Daniel, the prophet Daniel, the book of Daniel, is of royal blood because of what this says here, that, that they'll become eunuchs, and that was kind of what Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went through. So some would say that Daniel was actually of royal blood because of this verse here. So our last verse for tonight. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, At least there will be peace and truth in my days. Wow. He's like, yeah, that's good, Isaiah. No, no worries, man. I, I'll be fine. I got 15 years. All that stuff's going to happen to my sons. Well, that's what it sounds like. That's actually not what he's saying. I mean, it does kind of sound snobby. Uh, it's like, hey, I'm good, man. If it's going to happen to my sons, then no worries. This is not snobbery. This is actually humility. And we get more of the picture, just a couple of verses from Second Chronicles chapter 32. It says, In those days Hezekiah was sick and near death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Pride. Therefore, wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart and the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So it wasn't snobbery. That's, it kind of lends itself to that, the way it's written in Isaiah, but that wasn't in fact the case. He was actually humbling himself. The word of the Lord which you've spoken is good. God is always good. God is always right. And, and, and that's a position of humility for him to say that. He recognizes his sin in the moment. At times, close with this thought, at times in our humanness, we gain perspective when the devastating occurs. And sometimes in our humanness, we lose perspective when all is well. That's what had happened to Hezekiah in our chapters tonight. When the devastating news came, he turned to the wall and he turned to the Lord. When things were going well and Babylon was showing up with gifts, he turned away from God and turned up his pride. Sometimes when uh, or sometimes we gain perspective when the devastating occurs and we lose it when all is well. And God is fully aware of that and often directs our path appropriately. Amen?
Let's stand, let's close in prayer. Lord, you are wonderfully and gloriously in control of all things, sovereign over all. And yet, we can beseech you, Lord, and you incline your ear to us, and you hear the cry of our heart, and you move at times in accordance with what we ask for, because you're a good Father. And ultimately, Lord, you know what is best. And in this story, what was best for Hezekiah is that his life would continue so that Manasseh could come and ultimately Josiah could come. Ultimately, Jesus would come and redeem us. We thank you for the promise of eternity the promise of heaven when sorrow will be removed, when pain and suffering will be by the wayside, and we won't feel the grip of death any longer. Death will have lost its sting because of the promise of the resurrection. We'll spend eternity with our family, with our brothers and sisters, in the glorious relationship that you have knit us together in, honoring and glorifying you with all that we are. We'll pass from this land of death into the land of the living, Oh, how glorious a thought. Equip your saints tonight, Lord, I pray. I pray that we would walk with one another in humility and love. But Lord, that in the areas of our life where we have stolen the glory that you rightly deserve, we would repent and humble ourselves and recognize that we're just instruments in your hands. May you be pleased with our lives as we humble ourselves before you. In Jesus' name. Amen.